Let's turn for our reading from the Word of God to Gospel according to Luke, uh, chapter 6, and we'll begin to read uh, at verse number 20. This is the beginning of what is called often uh, the Sermon on the Plain, in contrast to the Sermon on the Mount uh, that we have recorded in Matthew's Gospel. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven. For that is how their fathers treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all men speak well of you, for that is how their fathers treated the false prophets. But I tell you who hear me, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone strikes you in one cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone takes your cloak, do not stop him from taking your tunic. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies. Do good to them and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. If someone slanders us, disrespects us, ill-treats us, even conceivably attacks us, what is our first response? Isn't it often to strike back, to strike back in the same vein, to repay in kind, perhaps even to exceed the original offense and make the offender sorry? It's even the expression you may have heard sometimes, get your retaliation in first. And there's that within us that wants to repay and get revenge, get even. Much of that in every human heart, I suspect. For 
wrongs that are suffered. They may be real. They may be terrible wrongs. They may have suffered tremendously or they may be imagined wrongs. And there are different ways they can both be very powerful. And we see around us people and whole communities that are, that are driven by a desire to have revenge, get even. We've seen enough of that in our own province over the years. And we might well say, well, isn't that the natural thing that you want to do? And yet we listen to the Lord Jesus in the portion we're thinking about today, and you see that as he teaches us, the attitude of disciples is to be radically different from that of the world around us. How a disciple lives, how the disciple responds in those situations is not how the world thinks or what the world expects, but it's what the Lord requires. And so we're turning uh, now again in Luke 6 today to look at verses 27 to 36. Radical love. Radical love. Here's a lifestyle, a whole set of attitudes that are the very opposite of the world, of the people around us that we may mix with day by day. Radical love. First of all, Jesus speaks about loving enemies. Loving enemies. Now we need to see this in its context, of course, as we always do. And we want to think first of the kind of teaching that many, maybe most of Jesus' hearers had been accustomed to. What had they been told? Well, we have a sample of it, Matthew five forty-three where in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus speaks often of the things that people had been taught. You have heard that it was said. In Matthew 5, 43, they'd heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he'd imbibed that. And that was the kind of attitude that had been instilled in them. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And if we think of that in the context of an occupied country, Here was Israel under the heel of the Romans, an oppressed people, seething with a desire for liberation. Of course, that's a message that people would have wanted to hear. Love your neighbor. Yes, your good Jewish neighbor. Hate your enemy. Well, there they were walking about with their weapons, with their dominion over our country. Of course, they wanted to hate their enemies. There were plenty of them around. The pagan Romans, of course, were the the obvious target, but it wouldn't be difficult to translate that into the whole area of personal enemies as well. Love your neighbor, hate your enemies. It was the people who had been accustomed to this that Jesus is speaking. And so we see, don't we, the radical nature of Jesus' command, love your enemies, in verse 27. To to many, it would be shocking to hear Jesus say, love your enemies. It's not what they wanted to do. Their response in their hearts, if not out loud, very well might be, well, but you can't be serious to tell us to love our enemies. 
You know what they're doing to our country. You know what they're doing to our people. And you're telling us to love them. And many of Jesus' hearers would respond in that way. We must rid our minds of ideas. Remember, we're standing there and gently, placidly saying, love your enemies, good thing. Yes, I'm going to do that. They'd be shocked. Many of them might well be quite angry to be told to love their enemies. They knew enough about their enemies to want to hate them. And then Jesus drives the point home even further. Love your enemies, verse 27. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill treat you. And again, someone listening would be getting angrier and angrier with every statement Jesus is making. You don't seriously expect us to do that answer. Yes, he does. That's what he's commanding those who wish to be disciples. Not just refrain from harming enemies, but to do positive good. And of course, that requires a mindset that is being shaped by the grace of God, by the work of the Holy Spirit to be enabled to do that. It is not a response that comes naturally to sinners. Of course it doesn't. We know our own hearts. This is something that's the result of God's work. It is a work of grace. Again, look at the context Uh, Forget about uh, the headings that are put into our translations, NIV or ESV or whatever. Jesus simply carries on from verse 26 to 27. There's no break. We might tend to think there's a heading in there and he's moved to a different subject. He hasn't. He's simply carrying on what he has been saying in those earlier verses. And remember verse 22, as we pointed it out, blessed are you when men hate you. And why? Because of the Son of Man. And we said that the context of all of those Beatitudes is the cost of discipleship of following the Son of Man. Abuse received because of him. Persecution for Jesus' sake. And so now Jesus is saying the response of believers to the enmity of the world is love your enemies. It follows on from what he said about the cost of being a disciple. And the world will hate you. It'll be your enemy. And now Jesus says love your enemies. We're not to be returning hatred for hatred. Yes, there is an application uh, to personal enemies. By God's grace, the Christian is to love, to do good, to bless, to pray. It's contrary to the sinner's natural desire uh, for revenge and to get even. But the disciple is called, isn't it the case, to manifest the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5.22, it begins with love. But if disciples are persecuted for Jesus' sake, if disciples are abused because of their faith, the Savior's command is love those enemies who are opposed to you and your faith and ultimately your God. 
But of course the question arises, well, are we to take this literally when we read, for example, verse 29, uh, to, to turn the other cheek? It's become proverbial, of course, but uh, Jesus says, if someone strikes you in one cheek, turn to him the other also. Is Jesus saying, just stand there and take abuse? Let them hit you, let them beat you up, don't do anything. Is that what he's saying? Give to everyone who asks you. Do we take that literally? Are we going to end up simply as impoverished, exploited people? Should we, when people come and we're open and are looking for money, as they do from time to time, should we just dole it out willy-nilly? There are those who say we should. We have abuse from folk. Uh, who don't agree with our not giving cash to anybody who asks. Told on one occasion out in the street, you should be given to them and don't ask any questions. You should be given to them. Not sure they were given to anybody, but that's a different issue. Is that what Jesus is saying? Let people beat you up. Let people take everything you've got. That's what it is to be a Christian. I don't believe it is. I don't think that's consistent with the rest of Scripture. We know often that Jesus in teaching would use striking, dramatic expressions to make a point. When he talks, for example, about having a plank in your eye, didn't mean that literally. But when you were spotting the specks in other people's eyes, a plank in your own eye, in one sense, exaggerated, but that's why Jesus used language like that. And I think here, similarly, he is doing the same thing. On occasion, Jesus would rebuke violence to himself uh, when he was on trial before the high priest, uh, John 18. He was struck in the face by one of the high priest's attendants. Jesus responded, if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? He didn't simply stand mute, waiting for the next blow. And so Jesus surely is requiring here a generous spirit, a God-directed spirit, a readiness to give to others, to those who do hate us for our faith, who do abuse us. A generous spirit. He's not commanding that we simply take abuse, that the victim of domestic abuse, the battered wife, is simply to stand there and wait for the next blow on the next. That's not what he's saying. And he's not saying dole out your money to people who'll go off and drink it or inject it or whatever. I don't believe that's a biblical response. And that's not, I believe, what Jesus is commanding his disciples. We're to consider what will glorify God in this situation. What will be the best interests of the other person and ourselves. And the principle that sums it up, of course, verse 31, do to others as you would have them do to you. So-called golden rule. So we need discernment in the wider context of Scripture to understand exactly what Jesus is exhorting his disciples to do. But to love enemies, to love those who are opposed to our faith and to us and to our God is a distinguishing mark of his disciples. And that's what he is commanding when he talks about loving enemies. 
How does a Christian respond when he is mocked, when he is derided, when he is treated as as a threat? And increasingly that's the case in our culture. The days when Christians were generally respected and it was thought nice to have churches, even if I didn't ever go into them, nice to have them there, their good influence, that's going. And if you don't realize that, look around and listen to what your society is saying. More and more Christians are not wanted. And churches, if anything, are increasingly seen as a baneful influence that we'd be better without. Harken back to Victorian morality and all of that unwoke kind of attitude. And Christians need to be prepared for that and need to be able to respond as the Savior requires his disciples to respond. And it brings us secondly to think of excelling sinners. Excelling sinners. From verse 32 on, Jesus draws a very stark contrast between the outlook of sinners and the outlook of disciples. He really just sets them side by side. This is what you'll get in the world. This is what you should get among my disciples. Because he knows how easy it is for his disciples to lose their distinctiveness Maybe they're rubbing shoulders, not literally at the minute, but metaphorically, rubbing shoulders with unbelievers, with people who don't share their their beliefs and their values day by day. And it is easy to lose your distinctiveness and increasingly fit in and adapt to the attitudes and the lifestyle of sinners. For the salt to lose its saltiness, as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. And so Christians need to be exhorted and commanded to this kind of God-honoring lifestyle. And and the crucial test is the kind of love that disciples show. Verse 32, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Of course it is right and proper and necessary to love those who love us. That is our first responsibility. But if we just do that, Jesus is saying, his disciples are not going beyond the love that the world shows. Since you could find it anywhere, people love those who love them in general. Even sinners, he says, love those who love them. And the same is true of doing good. If we do good to those who do good to us, the world will do that. Uh, If you lend to those from whom you're going to get back, the world will do that. There's nothing distinctive in that. Disciples will not look any different from the world if that is all that they do. You can find in the world those kinds of values, and there are At one level, moral people in the world. There are people who want to be honest. But disciples are to do more than the world does. Sinners, when they lend, will calculate the likelihood of repayment. Or they'll be responding to good that they have received. 
And Jesus is saying that is not enough for disciples. And he drives the, uh, the lesson home uh, in verse uh, 35. Love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Here it is a lifestyle empowered by the Holy Spirit. And of course we need Spirit-given wisdom to know how best to put these commands into practice. We need discernment. We're not called to be naive. We're not called uh, to be open to exploitation. We need the Lord's guidance as to what will serve the good of the person to whom we're giving. We need discernment on how to love the unlovely and the unworthy. Sometimes even good, zealous Christians can simply confirm sinners in their lifestyle. They become enablers, the phrase sometimes is used. And we're not called to do that. We're not called to fund sinners' addictions. We're not called uh, to allow ourselves or others to be the objects of violence. We need godly discernment. It's how to love enemies how uh, we are to do good to others, how we are uh, to lend to them. What will really benefit them? What will be for God's glory? Those are the the questions we need to be asking. Why is it that we don't give cash to people who come and ask for it here? Because we don't believe that that is God honoring and is for their good. We'll take them, we'll buy them food, as we've often done. And that's fulfilling the Savior's command. We need godly, spirit-directed wisdom. How do we implement this different lifestyle? And yet it is crucial to discipleship that we are going beyond what the world will do. And the world will see that. It's a powerful witness to a world that's operating on a different set of values and principles. And Christians increasingly, just by being consistent Christians, are going to stand out from the community around them. People don't live like that anymore. People less and less share those values. And so there's a distinctiveness in the life of disciples that the world ought to see. A world where revenge and hatred are so common. And Christians are to be different. And of course, if we as Christians are the objects of the world's opposition, if we're scorned, if we're mocked, uh, if we do face uh, opposition, of course the response is to hit back. And you only have to look at social media. And sadly, you see, sometimes professing Christians aren't much different from the world. If they're attacked, if they're derided, they'll answer back in the same way. And that's a natural tendency, but it's not a God-honoring tendency. And it's not difficult to find those who try to respond to the world in the world's ways with the world's language 
and the world's methods. And it is a tremendous challenge to Christians. We live in a world that doesn't share our faith and our values. But then Jesus tells us in John 15, 19, I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. That's what Jesus told us. Why are we surprised when we encounter that? Why are we shocked when we find the world doesn't think we're great folk because we're Christians? Jesus warned us. We've been coddled for generations in this part of the world by having community around us that broadly shared a Christian outlook. There was Christian influence and that we're not hostile uh, to Christian witness. We said that is vanishing rapidly. Uh, and we are becoming a minority. And the danger as a minority gets hard and bitter. And the danger for Christians is that living in that environment, they get hard and bitter. And when they're hit by the world, the one thing they want to do is hit back. And Jesus says, instead, love your enemies. Do good to them. That'll shock them. It's not what they're accustomed to. It's not what they expect. But it reflects the Savior. Excelling sinners. And we need to be on guard against those dangers and what can become sometimes a very fraught environment for Christians. When there are issues of debate in the province and the nation and how Christians deal with them. It's not in the attitudes and the language of the world. It's as consistent disciples call to love their enemies. Excelling sinners and so finally imitating God. Imitating God. Why would we live like that? Why would we be so different in ways that will attract sometimes hostile attention? Wouldn't it be easier to fit in, to, to conform, not to be too tight about Christian principles? Because life will be a bit easier if you're not. You don't rub as many people up the wrong way if you keep your head down. Don't make too much about these Christian things and Christian principles. Why should we live like this? Imitating God is the answer. A disciple never loses by obeying the Lord's commands. And that's a principle we need to remember. The disciple never loses. In earthly terms, yes, sometimes we'll be exploited. Sometimes we'll be taken for fools. And I'm sure there are the times when we have bought food for folk, for example. They went away and laughed up their sleeves. I'm sure they did. How many were ever genuine? I don't know. We will be taken for fools sometimes. And we've got to be prepared for that. That's how the world functions. But in spiritual terms, disciples never lose. And Jesus tells us in verse 35, your reward will be great. 
your reward will be great. There's encouragement to godly living. We'll be blessed and loved by the Lord. And the ultimate reward, of course, is when the Lord comes back, isn't it? It's not in this world. There are rewards, there are blessings in this world, but the ultimate reward is when Christ comes back and when he will say to good and faithful disciples, Matthew 25, 34, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you. You see, the reality is that for the non-Christian, this world is the best they'll have. And for the Christian, this world is the worst they'll have. That's the reality for us. And we better get our scale of values right to live for a world that will pass away, to forfeit reward when the Lord returns. Utter foolishness. There will be a reward. Not that we earn the reward, of course. It's because the Lord loves his people. And he rewards them as a gift of his grace and his love. Great is your reward. And more than that, Jesus says, you will be sons of the Most High. Isn't that an amazing expression? Don't don't ever get so accustomed to it that you lose the sense of amazement. You will be sons of the Most High. It's not that this kind of love makes us sons of God. It's not that this sort of attitude saves us. Far from it. That's never the case. But to love enemies in this way is to demonstrate that you are a son of God, that you are one of his children. As children of God, we are to imitate our father. We are to manifest the family likeness. You can do that, of course, physically because of your genes. You look very like your father, your mother, your grandfather. You can see family likenesses, can't you? But spiritually, disciples are increasingly to be like their father, to show their sonship in the way they live. The family likeness, and as Jesus says, he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. If God does that, then we who imitate him are to do the same. Kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. Remember, before you were converted, you were among the ungrateful and the wicked that the Lord has been kind to. True disciples increasingly look like the Lord. Be merciful. And mercy is a word in the Bible that has in view Misery. You're merciful to those who are in misery. Not just material, this worldly misery, but ultimately spiritual misery. The misery of sin. The misery of separation from God. The misery of having a prospect of eternal separation from God. Be merciful. Just as your Father is merciful. You've benefited from your father's mercy. Show mercy then to others. And where do you see mercy supremely? 
Isn't it in Jesus? In the Messiah. There's the pattern of mercy. There's the example of mercy. Indeed, there's the one who enables us to be merciful. It all points us to Christ. Imitating God. And ultimately, that is why we are to live this life of loving enemies. It is to show that we are children of God and to glorify our Father. Ephesians 5.1 Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and live a life of love. In a world that is hostile in many ways, in a world that at times doesn't want us and would prefer to be rid of us. It is a huge challenge to implement the Lord's commands, to love enemies, to do good to those who hate us. So much in us wants to hit back, wants to get even, wants to make them sorry. And Jesus says, if you're going to show the world what I am like and what my Father is like, you can't live like that. By God's grace, and it's not in our strength, it's by God's grace and by the power of the Spirit, love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to get anything back. The call to love enemies to do good to those who hate us, to bless those who curse us. By God's grace we can. By God's grace we can show to a surprised world what God is like. In some ways the world is very little interested in what we believe, but it's certainly interested in how we live. They need to be able to look and listen and see and hear the Lord and heal of the glory. And that is our greatest desire, is it not? Radical love. Without God's grace, we'll never do it. Utterly impossible. With the grace of God, this is how we live for his glory.